Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Taufik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Hello, Roots of the Spirit community. I hope each and every one of you are keeping safe and are doing the best that you can in light of everything that's going on in quarantine life, this newly adapted world that we live in and sending love. Today's episode is interesting. It's merely a conversation between me and my husband, Hisham, and we are provoking one another to dig deep and talk about a couple different topics. The funny thing is, I am trying to reboot myself and get back on track and create somewhat of a consistent flow of producing my podcasts. But the honest truth, and I I speak about it a bit in the episode, is that my mind, it feels like a cloud over it, even though it's like there is definitely a silver lining in everything that we're experiencing. There is like a creative cloud over my mind. And so I really had to push myself to get this episode, not this episode, but just get back into a routine because I was in such a groove with my podcasts and then during quarantine, everything just shifted so rapidly and I feel like even though we're a couple months in, I still don't have a full, like I still feel discombobulated. So anyways, Hisham and I had uh, one of our regular conversations, so it's super duper candid. There's even some explicit lyrics in our language. Of course, we are having the conversation for the purpose of sparking dialogue around important issues of race and racism and social justice, but it's like a really raw conversation. Initially, I was like, hey, let's put some topics in the basket and we'll choose like six to talk about. We literally got to (laughs) 1.2. We talked about two different topics because we really got into a groove. So if you do have the kids around, please know that there are a couple words in the swear word dictionary. But um, yeah, if there's anything in the podcast that you're like, wait, I'm not quite sure I understand or I agree. I really... The purpose of my podcast, like I really want to get a conversation going. So if you'd be so kind, send me an email, go to my website, rootsofthespirit.com, send me a message. I would love to be more interactive with you amazing folks who are listening to the podcast so that I can speak to issues that you're interested in. I would really love that. So without further ado, here it is in Rough, Rugged, and Raw, Roots of the Spirit with Hisham Tafik. Hisham, welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I appreciate you for coming on the show. And like I said, I mean, as much as you are a guest, this is going to be more of just a casual exchange. Okay. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Let's just break it down. There's so much going on in the world. Why are you checking the time? You you committed to an hour. I did. <laughs> Counting emailed me. Child, I ask people if they can be on my podcast. I give them time frames, parameters, but I guess because I'm family, I'll wait. Just like, yeah, Jay-Z said, I'll wait. I'll wait, 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 wait. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> all right, so super duper casual. You and I have conversations all the time. So I I thought it would be cool. What we did is 
I bought, um, what do you call those index cards? And we each wrote down six topics. So let's talk. I have this gigantic basket and I'm going to shake up the topics and in no particular order, we're just going to talk. Shake it, shake it, shake it like a Polaroid picture. Shake it like a Polaroid. You can't Wait, check so your when email. I, when, I, when I pick out one, I'm He's asking. Tom, you can't check your email because if you're on an interview with someone else, okay. you couldn't be checking your emails. Shake it like a Polaroid picture. So what was the clarifying question? Who's picking? You're going to pick first and then we'll go back and forth. Okay. And we'll see how it goes. So you pick first and then we'll just jump off with our conversations. Real estate versus racism. Whose topic is that? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know it's yours. That's my topic. Interesting. Okay. So let's kick it off. So why did you choose that topic? Well, you're going to notice all my topics have to do with usually my experiences. And I would say that since I've been doing real estate for the last... Mm, five, five or years. six years yeah. it's just been very interesting the um the things you come up against when it comes to buying properties fixing them up uh renting them there's like there's always an element of race that i've experienced that plays into it so I'm interested, like, why did you put versus racism? Do you mean racism in real estate or like? Yeah, you know that's, what, what, I, that's okay. what I meant. Break it down. What's been your experience? Well, a lot of it also depends on the market, too. So, well, my first experience ever buying a house was in a all white neighborhood. And when I originally put the off, I had a black broker. And I remember him telling me that they, and he, he told me too, it was like the, the all white, it was a, it was like this one strip, all white. There was one, actually the person who told me about the house was black. So there was one black family on this seven block strip of just white homeowners. And I remember the broker saying, Hey, you know, they don't want to rent to you because, or sell to you because you're black. And I remember they didn't accept my offer. I was like, all right, whatever. And I don't know what happened. I think somehow the word got out that I was a firefighter and the owner of the home's son was a firefighter. So then it was like, hey, is he still interested in this house? <laughs> and I, at the time, I was buying a house to just renovate it and flip it and get some money. So I was like, I didn't really care if not, they wanted to come back to me as business. So I was like, yeah, I'm still interested in the house. And that was my first house I ever purchased. And the funny thing is I, I ended up not fixing and flipping it. I ended up getting stuck because that's when the housing market crashed in 2007, 2008. So I wound up getting stuck in this all white neighborhood for a very long time. And to this date, None of my she neighbors. Said stuck. None, yeah. None of my neighbors ever spoke to me. <laughs> I never heard you describe it like that. <laughs> You're talking about Yonkers. Yes. <laughs> and Yonkers has a very, very deep. Oh my gosh. Uh, and I didn't know it at the time because I came from Harlem. Racist I knew nothing past. about Yonkers, but Yonkers has a very deep racist past. Yes. 
Um, There's a, do- a documentary called Brick by Brick about desegregation, schools, and housing. Mm-hmm. I remember I showed it at one of my film festivals. Anyways, so yeah, it's deep. Yeah, very deep. So they were just blatant and said, hey. Well, I don't know what they told him, but he told me that. And it wasn't like, hey, you know, we got a lawsuit because they don't want to. He was basically like, hey, they don't want to sell you because you're black. So (laughs) on to the next one type of thing. An interesting theme that popped up for me as you said that is it's like, oh, well, you're black and we really don't want to sell to black people or this neighborhood doesn't want black people buying in it. Oh, but you're a firefighter. So you have a different cred. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You get certain passes for different credibilities beyond just you being a human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've just learned, I've, I've had an early experience with just knowing the history of race in this country being taught to me by my father and mother. And so I just, I've come to understand it is what it is. When I was young, I used to fight and bash my head up against it. Sometimes I'll fight, sometimes I won't. It's all about picking and choosing your battles. Um, but that's just, it is what it is. And I deal with each instance according to how I feel in the moment. So the thing is, it makes me think like, whew, this could be a whole podcast episode. Totally could. And I'm going to put like kind of a note to self. This needs to be a full on episode because you've been in the game quite a while and you've been a human being <laughs> for even longer. So we can talk about that at length, but I love it. Not love, not love racism in real estate, but I love the idea of breaking it down. Like I I remember when I lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, and uh, a white male friend of mine who came from, uh, he came from a different state. And he said that his real estate agent only showed him houses in white neighborhoods. And so, you know, we were having a conversation about it and he was saying he was blown away. And I'm like, well, Black people are only shown homes in black neighborhoods and you know what I'm saying? Like redlining and there's such a deep history. So I feel like, yeah, I really want to dive into it deeper, but it's so deep, right? As you very well know, because I bring you pieces of my writings all the time. I'm like, Hisham, can you listen to this? You know, writing, co-writing my mother's memoir, been rooting up different experiences from our lives and racism in real estate or landlord and renter relationships and just all of that stuff is something that it's always been a part of my life. When my parents split up, we moved to this housing co-op in a town called Sudbury, Ontario. And what happened is she got accepted into her bachelor's program at Laurentian University in this city, town city. And she organized to begin like for us to move into this housing co-op before they ever met her and so we packed up she had signed contracts and everything and we packed up and we got to the co-op and when we arrived they she went to the office to check in and they're like um there must be a mistake we don't have a unit available when she showed up as a black woman all of a sudden they didn't have a unit So she had to fight just to get the unit that she already had reserved for us to live in. And it makes me emotional because it just enrages me. So, I mean, the list goes on and on, but you're looking at it from your perspective. I'm looking at it from my perspective. And the reality is there's a lot of deep racism that goes along with everything that we're experiencing today. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought up racism. As you know, that's one of the hot topics of the podcast, but it's great because... 
Yeah. We got to do a whole episode on that particular topic. All right. So let's go back to the basket. Oh, it's my turn, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. This one. <clears throat> speaking out and speaking the truth. So that's broad. That's my topic. I bring it up because there's so much going on and I just feel like it should be natural. It should be like our human rights as human beings on the planet that we should be able to speak out and tell the truth and not be like at risk of losing jobs or you know what I'm saying? I feel like we should be able to speak our experiences and it not be a problem. It, we should not be putting ourselves at risk. So I bring that up just in light of everyday life, but also like with the lynching of Ahmad Aubrey, a lot of people have spoken out. Actors and prominent people have used their platforms and voices to speak out about how they feel about just this disgusting injustice and just the ongoing injustices. I just want to talk about why is it so risky to speak out? It's always been risky to speak out. True. There's always a cost. So elaborate. I mean, it's been going on for times. Whether you spoke out and was like, black people should have the right to vote. There was a course to get your name on the voters registration. They came to your house, lynched you, killed you, chased you out. I mean, for the history of black people in this country, there's always been a, a course of speaking out. Not just because maybe now you might have more black folks with money who can speak out and the course might not hit them as hard, but there's still a course. I mean, even in Harry Belafonte's book, he talked about the difference between Sidney Poitier and himself as far as their activism Mm -hmm. and how Sidney was more kind of, and this is his point of view, Sidney was more, even though he was dark-skinned, he was more mild-mannered, which kind of allowed him to have this success in Hollywood. And Harry Belafonte felt that he was more outspoken and fiery which weirdly enough didn't affect some of his success in music but when it came to him being on screen he feels that that played a role into what roles he was allowed to do and why things weren't offered to him so i have a question very well aware of his deep 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 activism but as you're speaking i'm wondering if color politics plays into that. Did Sidney Poitier have the option as a darker black man to speak his mind as Harry Belafonte? Great question. Great question. I don't know. It's rhetorical. I mean, I don't, I'm just bringing it up because there are levels to it. You know what I'm saying? There are depths to it. And, and skin color plays a huge role. And then you could also think that also Sidney had one avenue of his talent, which was acting. In Harry's case, he was singing and acting. So even if he didn't get an acting job, he had, he could make an album and he was almost guaranteed to have those albums sell regardless, I mean, regardless of, of skin color almost. And I, so, I say that with all due respect. No, because you know that's, what I'm saying? The difference but it's true. Between, that's the difference between music and TV. The images are powerful. Music is powerful, but music may be allowed to get away with a lot more things than TV and film. You know, seeing a black man on the screen holding a white woman, kissing her, 
that people might not be able to tolerate that. But if I make a song about it, you don't see it. So I think that could have played into why Harry felt the way he felt, might have played into his analysis of it. Um, but even in, even he says this, and this is one of the things I learned growing up, just seeing the sacrifice my father made and a lot of other civil rights leaders, he even asks himself, he's like, he knows that his activism cost him a lot of money. Now, even though he made a lot of money, he knows that it cost him a lot of money. And I think he hinted somewhere in his book that, no, what did he say? Ah, that's what he said. So he saw the price that Paul Robeson played for his activism. Mm-hmm. He was, they took his passport, wasn't allowed to travel, couldn't make money, end up dying, brokenhearted, poor, and just destitute. And I think Harry Belafonte said he would never let that happen to him. He wouldn't let his activism allow uh, the powers to be to kind of do what they... He he was basically saying, what happened to Paul Robeson is not going to happen to me. So whatever things he put in place to make sure financially... But it is a compromise, though, because you have to be very strategic and say, okay, so I can speak up about this... And not this, because that's going to compromise my streams of income or my, you know, economically speaking. Well, at the end of the day, the first rule of law is preservation of self. Okay, so I'm going to shift it a little bit because I have the frame of Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, and Paul Robeson. And now I'm like, well, last night, and you've gotten me so deep into it, the Michael Jordan story. The Last Dance, is that what it's called? Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm learning these things about Michael Jordan I never knew. And one of the things that stands out to me is that he was highly criticized for not speaking out about different things. And of course, you're a celebrity, a global celebrity on that level. Everyone's going to attack you from all different angles. But I say that to say like people who are in positions of power or influence, they have to make these decisions all the time, no matter what the, the issue is. But... I'm just wondering to what degree do these threats of holding back resources from you or taking resources from you or opportunities or blacklisting you, all of these different things, to what degree does that stifle our voices? And I'm saying our because we're talking about Harry Belafonte, but really we're talking about these figures, but really I'm using it as a microcosm for our conversation. To what degree do these, this power have us stifling our own voices. I mean, you are stifled in a way, but you have to be strategic. If you have five kids and you're making money and now you got to use your voice to speak up and you know that's going to threaten your money and the survival of your five kids, like, what do you choose? Totally just, you know me, I mean, I just bring up stuff and I want to try to talk through it because so interesting. The other day I had an interview from a a student at Hunter College, and she was asking me the most amazing questions. And one of the questions she asked me, she said, you, on one of your podcast episodes, asked yourself, you turned the question around on yourself, your signature question, what are the roots of your spirit? And you said, authenticity. And I said, you know, in that episode, I said, it's a striving toward authenticity. Because even though I have a podcast to having honest conversations about race, racism, and social justice, I have to really push myself and make it's very uncomfortable to speak as truthful, like the real truth. Like if someone tapped our house, they'd see like it wouldn't be a hundred percent consistent. I, who says that's not authentic? I'm not saying I'm not authentic, but what I'm saying is 
it's in relation to the frame of you have to be strategic, right? I can't just go out and say every single thing I want to. People like I'm working my way towards that because I have crazy strong opinions, but, been, but I haven't been as brave to really like speak them, speak them, well, speak them. Well, let me ask you them. this. We know Malcolm Martin, other leaders had their homes tapped, right? Yeah. When they felt that their homes were tapped, did they just say, fuck it? And no, they were aware they had to change their language. They had to have signals. They had to do. That doesn't mean they weren't being authentic. They they adapted, like, you know, in the Marines. They adapted and overcame whatever that situation was. It didn't change their authenticity. It changed how they communicated with each other about it, knowing that people were listening to their conversation. Well, I guess what I'm getting at is, like, in the work that I do, it's all about, like, getting to the truth. You can't uproot racism unless we have the truth on the table. It's like, I'm looking over there on the shelf, there's a puzzle. If we are trying to put together a puzzle and we have puzzle pieces and Legos and Playmobil, but we're trying to put together the puzzle, we're using the wrong pieces. I mean, I think in analogies, I say that all the time, but point being, if we're not dealing with the truth, if we're not dealing with how we really, really, really feel, then we're not going to be able to like deal with it correctly and try to change it. For example, and I know this conversation is like, it's based on the prompts that we had, but it, it flows because that's how you and I do. But um, Omari Hardwick's wife, she, her name is Mrs. J on Instagram. In her post, she said this, I'm, I'm speaking out to my white people, to my white family, to my white friends. She said, you know, the hashtag, I run with Ahmad who is lynched by a father and a son former police officer. And so to honor his family, people around the country were running 2.3 miles. And she got on Instagram and she said to my white friends and family, if you're going to lace up your shoes and run today because it makes you feel better about yourself, stay home. Mm -hmm. I mean, I saw the post. I think white people have not been in a, put in a position where speaking the truth historically, there are some white people who have spoken the truth, went on the freedom rides, all that stuff, and they've lost their lives. But I would say there's a higher percentage of white people who don't know that feeling. And just the idea of, oh my God, you mean my circle's not going to speak to me anymore? Or you mean I can't go over to her house for drinks? Or you mean my kids can't go over there and play? Like that terrifies them. As black people, that's normal for us. We've, we've come up in this belief that, hey, we know if we speak the truth, daddy might not be able to get the job. Or we, right now we can't have this and this because dad is outspoken. That comes with pride and we're used to that. We're accustomed to that. But I think white people aren't. So the idea of them losing that is terrifying. So speaking the truth and speaking up for the injustice of black folks in this country will cost them those relationships which historically they've never had to give up and they can't fathom giving them up. So yes, running in the name of some just cause, she's right, will make them feel good inside, but it doesn't put in danger their, their network of friends and their job. You know, they're just one well, white person jogging. You, know, you don't know what their cause is until, you know, it's to themselves. But if they do an action that is putting them in the spotlight of speaking up for it. Like if they go march and they're on CNN and they're giving in, 
Then when they go home to their neighborhood and park in their car, the neighbor across the street that usually talks to them is not going to talk to them now. Is not going to invite them on summer vacations anymore. That kid can't go ride down the street without being called. Uh, like that terrifies them. And they're not giving that up. So speaking the truth is not really about black folks speaking the truth. We've always spoke the truth. It's about white folks speaking the truth and being comfortable with accepting the repercussions. And it hurts harder, especially when you're in those salary caps where it allows you to mix and mingle with all of those people. So if speaking the truth costs you that salary, like in that neighborhood, where you going? They're not giving that up. I remember, and he wasn't even white. I had a newest black person who lived in Greenwich, Connecticut and got hit hard by the 2008 housing crash. And I remember going with him to these all white country clubs. Country clubs. He was the only black person. And I remember going with him and being like, wow, this is nice. Like I could do I would love coming to a country club and having this five-star dinner and playing golf with my kid in the pool. And I saw him surrounded by all of this. And then I saw him lose all of the money that allowed him to enjoy that. And I saw him go crazy trying to figure out how to restore that money so he could continue that lifestyle. And he did the most evil things to keep up, to, to be able to keep that circle of people. And this was a black man. So I can only imagine it's the same or even worse for a white person to give that up and to lose that. That is terrifying. Like I think somebody has the saying that being poor is, you know, heartbreaking or whatever. But having money and then being poor, that's like... But I feel like it goes deeper than money. I feel like money is kind of the currency well, or it's the tangible. To... Yeah, that's... yeah. So, so be it. Yes, there are major sacrifices and it might be terrifying. But you don't see like the evil that's going on. Like that doesn't bother you when you go to sleep. Not really because you're not surrounded by it. You know how neighborhoods are segregated. It's like, yeah. you know what? I don't have to see that. Yeah. I can block it out. Absolutely. What is the truth we can bring to this so that we're dealing with the truth? Okay, so another beautiful young black man was lynched. Another one. This and is not, like, a, it's ongoing. Absolutely. There's, you, if we heard that story, there are a hundred other stories that we don't hear. Exactly, and it's ever-present. So how do we use these moments where there is attention and... I feel as though in this instance, white people came to the forefront more so than with Trayvon Martin. I'm not quite sure. Well, because you had a blatant video. You're tough. You think white folks would have came to the to the forefront if there was no video? No. That, that's if, true. If that's the truth, I know, but then we are. So in other words, like we've been saying all along, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. This is what's happening. And it's fallen on deaf ears. So you need this evidence. I truly believe until the exact same things that are happening to black people happen to white people, there'll be no change. There won't. They couldn't. If you closed your eyes and told them to imagine two black men in a truck 
following a white guy and shooting them, they would think that's a horror story. That 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 is just hard. I can't. Im- what? No, they they can't even imagine that. And I'm not saying I want it to happen, but until the same injustice, until they go and find a see a beautiful home they want to get, and they can't get it because they're white, until they go buy a car, and then they find out that it's ten thousand dollars more because they're white, until they start feeling exactly the same things black people feel, I don't see any change. I don't. I'm sorry. Well, it's interesting because when Trump was elected, I saw white women, their reaction was like, it was so amazing to watch. I mean, interestingly enough, the irony behind that is insurmountable because white women played a huge role in getting Trump into office. I digress. Back to what I was saying. It rocked them to the core. And I'm not sure if there was like a feeling of invincibility. Like I feel invincible to these issues that, you know, I'm protected as a white person in, the, in America. But the election of Trump rocked white women to the core. And so I say that to say now we're dealing with COVID and it's like, you know, we're thinking, okay, so the environment and disease and things like that, that doesn't discriminate. However... It does discriminate. No, it doesn't discriminate, but we discriminate. We are a country founded on racism. So all of this talk about how we're all in this together and that this disease does not, um, this virus does not discriminate, but we discriminate. So you're seeing the manifestations of structural racism in this country on something that does not discriminate. I say all that to say in terms of empathy, Empathy is at the heart of my work. And it's like, in order to have compassion, in order to move the needle of the conversation toward like, how do you get white people on board to think that these problems are my problems too, right? And how do you hit that intersection of empathy? For me, I was telling you this yesterday. One of the things that that young woman asked me about, the student at Hunter who interviewed me for her school project, She asked me, she said, one of the things you said on your podcast is you find it really important. You've quoted Dr. Todd Allen, who quoted Terrence Roberts, Dr. Terrence Roberts, who said, you can't have honest conversations unless you have an informed historical perspective. And I feel like, to me, I feel like that may be my contribution, is trying to provide the historical perspective, not necessarily me, but curating the experiences and bringing forth the resources these scholars have spent years uncovering. Wait, just let me finish this thought because if I don't, I will lose it. (laughs) You know, I'm 40 now. Um, So my point is, and I was saying to you yesterday, that I feel that my empathy, my deep empathy and compassion comes from my experience, my personal experience of being ostracized at a very early age and not knowing how to navigate it, not having a language, not having just that seared in me. And I sometimes I feel funny. I'm like, I'm 40 years old. Why am I talking about the bullying I experienced as a young person? It's important because those were the years that my brain was formed, that everything in me was forming and it had a huge impact on me. So I never want to see kids have to go through that. And the second part is my liberation came when I became kind of a part of a global community. And I was saying to you, I was like, 
that informed historical perspective is everything. My friends in high school were Cambodian refugees and other friends, their parents fled Vietnam after the war and Somali immigrants. And I was saying to you that I can't stand it when people say, well, I have black friends. That's not your ticket to anything. You don't get a gold star for that. But there is value. I feel like my experience growing up in that environment later on in life, like in high school, being in those environments, I wouldn't know about the Cambodian genocide. I would not know about like the reality of my Vietnamese friends and family and the, the war in Somalia. I wouldn't know that. So yes, we should have been taught this in school, but we weren't. It was by virtue of deep friendships. Okay, but here where I say fuck historical perspective. And I used to believe in the profound, what was it, what say it, what is it? Informed historical perspective. Okay, this is why I say fuck that. And I could be wrong. You are, but go on. So, <laughs> right? So, there was a while when I kept hearing you saying that, and I was like, wow, yeah, that's good. These motherfuckers don't have an informed historical perspective. Yeah, let me tell these motherfuckers. But then... I was listening to this podcast, right? Which podcast? If it I don't wasn't want, I, no, I don't want to listen. I don't want to. It was another podcast, and I called you. I'm listening to this podcast oh, the about the real estate, right? Mm, please. So, and I've told you. No, but no, that's no, no, so listen, important listen, because listen, listen, your listen, point is going to run into my point. Okay, listen. Okay, but on. I told you before about how I'm listening to a podcast. I'm right? already enraged. I'm listening to a podcast, and they asked the person, okay, this, this real estate successful in real estate guy, millions of dollars, says, okay, they ask him, what books inspire you? What 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 has inspired you business-wise, entrepreneurial, like what inspires you to be so successful in this real estate business? And the guy says, oh, I'm reading this great book about, well, who was the president? George Washington. George Washington called The Great Entrepreneur. And then he says, I didn't know he was such an entrepreneur. He had accumulated so much real estate and was, and I had to pause it. I was like, what the fuck? I paused it. I called you and I'm like, didn't George Washington have slaves? He was like, he owned a hundred slaves. I'm like, well, motherfucker, yeah, that's how he got rich. That's how he got all his real estate. But that's the but, informed but historical listen, perspective. But listen, these guys... This you can't tell me this guy. Well, I'm assuming that in this book, and I have to read it. I'm assuming there has to be a mention that he had slaves. Of course. And if in this book, it's mentioned that he had slaves and accumulated this property. He used slavery to build up his wealth. How can you look up to that? How can that be the book you name as? Whoa, that's how. I build my entrepreneurial skills by taking advantage of other people who have taking advantage. Well, whatever the word you want to use, <laughs> slavery would like at the end of the day, that's what it was that made you rich. But yeah. this is the book he looked up to. But my point is, he has to have an informed historical. Where would it come from? His from that you know, textbooks. Textbooks so are you now me being challenged. Prior to, like, I, you can go back to, I think, my third episode on Roots of the Spirit podcast. I interviewed an amazing young woman, mm -hmm. and she said that up until recent years, uh, her brother 
had to push back on his teacher because his teacher said that slavery was a fabulous economics, fabulous economics. And yeah. it was it was talked about in economic terms. No, see, but here's my thing. They have an informed historical perspective, but their inner self does not allow them because them being white does not allow them to admit that it was wrong but I don't... and disgusting. You know why? Because they are still benefiting from it. Well, it's, it's almost like let's cover up the ugly parts. And that's what American history has done. Let's cover up the ugly parts. Like there's so many stories that are coming to the forefront. And for every story that we do know, there are probably a zillion more about atrocities that were inflicted. And it's to the point where it's like, sometimes people express being overwhelmed because these histories have been so buried. So if you, so do you, do you think that if it became law that from pre-K all the way up through college, there was a mandatory class on the real history well, of race, let me finish, of race in this country and injustice to black people and indigenous people and Native Americans, do you think that would boom generations of white people who have this historical informed perspective, thus That's changing how they go out in the world and contribute to the war against black folks? I think that I, a million different things come to mind. A million different things come to mind. I was digging into my 1619 curriculum that I'm making my way through. And this quote pounded me over the head. It said, if the narrative of America begins with slavery, everything thereafter is progress. So that is probably boomingly profound to you after having visited Ghana last December. Well, I knew that before. No, I'm not, say, I'm not saying you didn't know it. But what I'm saying, it's like this reality that's like, boom. If we do begin the narrative with slavery, everything thereafter is progress. If we don't acknowledge the dynasties and kingdoms and everything that was going on in Africa for thousands of years thousands then that's not an informed historical perspective well let me ask when you. have you ever sat in any type of educational setting and been told about the continent of africa like i'm not even i don't even have time well, to was, get into was, the details i was homeschooled well so you I were homeschooled know. but in the like public school system or you do you know what i'm saying no no but i would say this so why white people Go to Africa all the time. How come yeah, you never... But, let me finish. You never hear them talking about coming back from a place that isn't in famine and needy and orphans. Like, I don't hear them coming back with the stories from Ghana saying, wow, you know. So one thing that... Okay, so as you know, I'm on a spiritual journey. That goes back to... So I'm trying to... I'm There is an intersection of... You can't check your phone? I'm, you check, I'm just I'm listening. I'm trying to find the intersection. Well, I'm not trying to find it. It's a natural intersection because I feel as though compassion is infused in the work that I do. It has to be. So like my spiritual life is my personal spiritual life. It, it feeds into my work like as it relates to my retreats and everything. But it also somewhat, I feel as though some of the concepts fold over into like anti-racism work and understanding like 
how can we possibly come together or how does this play into that? I say all that to say consciousness is interesting. Um, Eckhart Tolle said that if you're, if you're not open, you can travel the entire globe and go nowhere if your consciousness is not open. So I, in my experience, and I'm going to be truthful, 100% honest, my experience traveling as a Canadian is so different than traveling with Americans. Like when I traveled as like with Canadians, it's a whole different experience. And I feel, and I have a cousin who helped me validate this, who was born and raised in the United States. She talked about the conditioning that American kids get about America being the greatest country in the world and all of these principles and ideals like as Canadians like it was a different vibe not to say that racism doesn't exist and they can't have like a closed consciousness that's not what I'm saying and I feel as though the United States has done an excellent job at infusing the lie of white supremacy and white superiority and it even though it is a lie and and is, is spread, it, the realities are born out of that. And our system is set up on that. I think that you can, as a white person, travel to Africa and keep your American mindset right there. And all of the judgments and lies about Africa stay with you. If you have preconceived notions, it's really hard to let go of them. It takes a lot. It's like advertising. There's a formula. You have to see something, what, 14 times before you make a move on it? Just think about trying to undo shit. How many times do you have to try to undo something before the racism can even be like an opening for, okay, racism is a reality. Oh, damn, these preconceived notions are like etched in my being. That's a deep thing to be able to acknowledge. And it's like the narrative and the, the reality is like, there's such a stronghold on white supremacy that it's very difficult to try to find those cross sections of where can we find empathy? I had a conversation with my mother. I'm like, how can white people begin to see the lynching of Ahmad Aubrey as their child too? They can't until it happens to them. And I'm not even saying that's just the white thing. I'll give you an example. I remember when I was riding my motorcycle and we used to do some dangerous shit. And I thought I was invincible. And it wasn't until I went down, broke my, just tore my ass up and almost died that I was like, oh shit. What has happened to some other people just happened to me. Let me put the brakes on this. So it, it might not even be a black and white thing. It's just if you're in a group where certain things don't happen, then that's not my that's not my issue. What's his name? Oh, he went down. Oh, he got crazy. He was stupid. Why he did that? He should have slowed down before that turn. Da, da, da. And then I go do it. Oh shit. Okay, I see how this happened. Let me chill out. So I don't like I said until white folks start getting the same treatment that we get, I, there's no way in the world you're going to, yeah, you might see five or ten of outrage make videos, but the majority, they're in the back of their mind, why didn't he stop? Why didn't he comply? 
Uh, I heard he looked in a building. I feel as though, like, when I look at it, the messages that are espoused like that come from the narrative. Well, they do, like, the narrative becomes your reality. So people actually think because black men have been criminalized. Absolutely. So it's like, if that's the case and that permeates your body and being and your psyche, then you're going to say things that justify what happened. So how do you change the image of black men being criminals? How do you change that? One of the things I learned about early, and thank, I thank my father for it, I was exposed to, like, there's a lot of black people who haven't been exposed to white culture and white people and being outnumbered by them in the workplace. They, like, I would see black guys come into the fire department in the firehouse, and that was their first interaction with a group of white people, and they didn't know how to function. Well, we've been so separated. So, so my father, I went to an all-white Jewish camp from 13 to 17, and I got to see how Jewish, and just I just I, I got to see it. I was introduced to racism very quickly at, at summer camp, and it was built on... When I went into the Marine Corps, it was built on when I went to corrections. So by the time I got in the fire department, I was like, all right, I know what this is. I know what to expect from this. I've been introduced to this from a very young age. So and in and being in all of those environments, that's when I found out early. I was like, there are a lot of lies that we're living on. Absolutely. Fucking lootly. And so how do, how do we get the lies to the surface? Proximity and lack thereof. Segregation. Analogy alert. A few years ago, we went to a talk. It was a book talk. It was two authors, Ginger Otis, who is the author of Firefight, the 100-year fight to desegregate New York City Fire Department. And there was another author, his name escapes me, of a book talking about the effort to desegregate the New York Police Department. What happened is in this book talk, the two authors literally were going down the same, basically the same exact path, doing the research, writing their books, unbeknownst to each other. They found out basically in, in some ways there were so many intersections and crossovers between the two books and experiences. And a lot of the same things were featured in both of their books to desegregate both agencies. But my whole point in bringing this up is what stood out to me and what I carry with me is that the author of the police department book said, or I can't remember who said it, but it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I don't even know, it could have been prompted by one of your questions, but because we all engaged in a conversation, it was brought up that the reason why the FDNY took so much longer and it was such a harder fight to desegregate is you had to live among each other. Mm -hmm. And in the police department, at the end of the day or the end of your shift, you go home. And I was like, boom, proximity. That being a microcosm of the deliberate strategic separateness, so many groups, but generalized whiteness being this conglomerate group well, and other add, and in particular the relationship between black and white in the United States well to add to that I remember being a firefighter and I remember working in Harlem and I remember like you know we go on these calls you get to go in everybody's home and I remember going into these homes 
and a lot of them were just really bad. But then we would go into homes on Strivers Row or even in some of the projects where the homes were immaculate. And you could tell that some of the white firefighters were like, oh, this this guy is really clean. Or this guy is... Because they were just used to seeing black people in homes that weren't kept. And I remember then working in a firehouse in Brooklyn in a very well-to-do Jewish neighborhood. And they had these big mansions. And I remember going into this one home and it was a mess. And it, it was shocking for me because... You my, bought into the stereotypes. Yeah, my thing was, oh, white people, big house. It must be nice. And I went in there and saw filth and dirt and mayhem and I was like... I think that that is an interesting point and it's a huge part of the conversation is our own internalized yeah. stuff. And that's actually at the heart of my retreats for women of color in particular because we have so much internalized messaging and it manifests in mental, physical, and spiritual. Well, that's the thing. If you tell somebody something long enough and paint, like after a while, I guess to even protect your sanity, you got to be like, well, maybe this is true. Like what other reason are we being demonized so much for? I mean, this is a conversation I've had with young people in classrooms is the messages that you see every day is like, how does that permeate your mind and sense of self and being? And what does that do to your spirit? when you see the image of yourself portrayed so negatively. I put up this cartoon last week and it was a black man clutching his black son, young black son, and there's like a thought bubble for both of them and it says the same thing. I worry so much about him out there. And the kid's saying the same thing. I worry so much about him out there. Like how does that impact everything about our experience in life to have this constant fear looming? And in, in Harry's book, he talks about they were just adamant about not showing a black. He said they would have, he would do these romance movies with white women, but there was no touching. Like they were adamant about not showing the image of a black man and a white woman physically touching. And when they finally did it, it was like, oh my God. So if you think about how important images are, they are. My father used to tell me images like, and that's why in homeschool, you saw pictures of, I had black comic books, you know, black heroes. That's why we saw it. You had to see it because those images trickle down into your brain and they're super powerful. It's another ideal of Roots of the Spirit is representation. Yeah, you have to. Like, negative and positive, positive and negative. Yeah. So what's the balance? It's like, what's the balance? I always ask like what is the balance because I'm on this like journey and I'm trying to practice radical self-care and I feel like I'm failing at it because I get triggered so hardcore and it's like how do you remain how do you maintain radical self-care in a world that is brutalizing and murdering your people the other night I think it was the same day that I run for Ahmad happened Jill Scott and Erica Badu did an Instagram live together. And literally I cried through a few songs because they were two beautiful black women loving on each other, affirming each other, 
pouring out their loving spirits. Like you could feel it through social media. Well, you know what was interesting about that? When I saw that, I didn't like the word burst. Oh, I know because it wasn't okay. So like just for context, everyone's been doing like these battles. They yeah. call it a battle, but they said Erica Badu versus Jill Scott. And I'm like, there was no verses. I left that like, Oh my God. But my point is like that moment of love, it just felt like I was showering in sunshine. You can have that moment and then you, your mind can go back to reality. But one of the conversations that you and I are continuing to have is about mental health and well-being. especially May is actually Mental Health Awareness Month. And it's talking about just putting to the forefront the mental, psychological, and physical manifestations of the realities of our world and how it lives in black bodies and manifests itself in so many different ways. I know we've been talking for a while. So my last question, well, actually this is a conversation, so it's not a question, but with the lynching of Ahmad, as we've discussed, many people spoke out and one that stood out to me is Sterling Brown from This Is Us an actor, an amazing actor from a variety of different shows, not just This Is Us. Sterling created a video reflecting on Ahmad's murder. And he was saying that from a very early age, his mother has told him like, you are a black man in America and life is going to be a struggle. And he talked about that and he was very open. He literally like he was at the core of his truth and speaking out about how he truly feels. And I'm, I'm as a black man in America who is an actor and we're talking about speaking the truth. Do you feel comfortable or uncomfortable speaking the truth? Speaking the truth. Or- speaking your truth. Do you feel as though... It's compromised by your public figureness. I'm at a point now where I don't give a fuck. Because <laughs> I'll be honest, there was a time I did care. I was like, oh, let me not post this. Let me not say this. At the end of the day, I know what it is out here. I've always known. And I remember, I, it's sad to say, but I feel more at ease now. Because there was a time, and I'll never forget in my acting class, I was doing a scene. And I made like a, there might've been two choices in the scene. And my brain did not allow me to make the choice that was like the positive fairy tale ending. My choice was like the uh, the other way. And I remember my teacher being like, oh my God, how dare you? Why didn't you go da, 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 da. And I remember my response being like, that's not how people think. Like, and it might've had been black and white. And I was like, no, my character wouldn't do. And she was like, why not? And I was like, no, that's, no, a white person like that. And I remember she kind of came to tears in defense of, no, human beings, like, that is a lot. Like, but she my white? Yeah. But my brain was always like, hell, fucking no, no. A black man wouldn't be able to do that. So that's the choice I made. And I remember for a long time, especially when I was in the fire department, it was like, why are you so mad? Why are you so angry? Why are you not my friend? Why you don't want to come out with a... And it was like, because I saw blatantly the bullshit. I saw blatantly the racism. No matter how much fucking syrup you poured on the fucking pancake, I saw it was bullshit under the syrup. So I fucking entertained it. So for a while, it was like, Hisham's mad. He don't smile. He's angry. He don't want to hang out with us. He's not our friend. 
He don't have no joy. He don't want to do it. all on you. But yeah. So now I would say in the last 20 years, especially after Obama left the presidency, all the shit I used to see is now there's no more syrup on it. And I'm like, okay, woo. Now so you I'm, feel like you can relax into Yeah, I'm not the crazy one no more. <laughs> nah, all of this shit. Oh, gosh. I had some fucking glasses on that allowed me to see this bullshit. And I was described as crazy, mean, don't smile, I'm not fun, I'm always tense. No, motherfuckers, now you'll see the same shit I see. And I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy. Everybody get a fucking therapist now. Because y'all can see that this shit is fucking insane. Who's that bullshit? We live in a post-racial era. Why are you so mad? Yeah. There's only gray. Like, gray? Obama's <laughs> president. Why are you mad? This, come on. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Now we see the shit for what it is. This ain't new. The prompt that we chose being about speaking the truth. What type of tangible kind of nuggets can we leave our listeners with to encourage more of the truth see but then again i don't like i said i don't think it's on us to speak yeah you're right that's that's kind of the way that i yeah you're right absolutely too black people been speaking the truth getting lynched hung killed homes burnt down not been able to work children murdered for speaking the truth since the damn or just live existence like i'm reading this book now and Coretta Scott King's book. And she opens up the book talking about her father always was an entrepreneur. And he went and started his own like log business, logging. And they came and burnt down his whole business with the logs. And then they burnt down his home. And then you just got to start all over from that. How, how the fuck do you start all over from that? Only because he was speaking the truth and just wanting to live and provide for his family. His being. And right. guess, guess what? You know when they accepted him? When he opened up a grocery store. Mm. Like, that was acceptable. And giving people credit, white and black. But let him have his own blog business. Let him have his own other business that was deemed white. No, we're not accepting that. So, like, black people have been, you know, we didn't have to speak the truth. I'm for Ahmad. Just your daily presence of fucking living. Just wanting to be a firefighter is true. Just wanting to do a job that isn't deemed black is living your truth. Just doing a sport like snowboarding and golfing is living your truth. Like those black women, they're just playing, they're black playing golf. They don't have to say shit. That's them living their truth. So it ain't about getting on social media. Just fucking living is being your truth. And that is going to get attacked. So that's so why I said message, the truth isn't on us. No, no, I'm not saying that the truth is on us, but we can send a message and say, white people stand up, white people speak out, like stop being afraid or step up. Yeah, you could say that, but... I mean, I'm, but this is the work that I do. Yeah, I just don't believe in convincing people to do shit. I'm like not trying they, to... They have to want to do it. There and, are people who want to do it, which is why yeah, I the do the work that I do because I... No, I'm not knocking the work you do. It's yes. not about the work that I do, but what I'm saying is, okay, so we acknowledge, and we've had this conversation offline, so, like, that racism is a white problem. It is white-created. Yeah, they make it it's seem like it's a White-manufactured. It needs to be white, reverse-engineered, and uprooted. I have a good analogy. When you go buy a home, 
this might be bad. I'm thinking about it right now. When you go buy a home and you do that inspection and that report comes back, oh man, the plumbing is fucking, it's horrible. The septic, it's, you got to replace the septic tank. Like when you find out structurally that house is fucked up, you have two choices. Walk away from the deal or ask the person selling the house to compensate you to fix those structural problems. Because no matter what you do with that house, if you don't fix that structure, okay, how pretty it is, it's not going to work. I think that's a great analogy. So until the structure of this country is a, and but guess what happens when you go to that seller and say, hey, I got to redo the plumbing for this house. They are going to say, fuck you and look for another sucker to buy the house. Or do the hard work. Or are they going to take a loss? They have to take a loss to compensate you to fix. Or do the hard work to fix it. But either way. Either way, they got to pay. They have to do something. It's a, something they yeah. have. It's, it's going to cost them, yeah. not me. Whatever they do is going to cost them. So for this country to fix whatever's going on, for the powers to be, the government, the president, whoever, it's going to cost them to fix it. Now they're going to do the same thing. Fuck you. Let me go find another sucker to keep this shit rolling. Or pay to fix it. Mm, mm, mm. And so, right now we've been getting a finger for a long amount of years. <laughs> That's a great... And getting a lot of suckers. Great analogy. Mm, mm, mm. To be continued. This was too good. Thank you so much. I feel like gems on gems on gems. Thank you very much, Hisham. Yay, yay.